Father's Day. So if you are a, uh, a dad already, or maybe you're going to be a dad, or maybe you're a grandparent, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for what you do as fathers. Uh, it, I, I know for myself, when my first uh, child arrived, I've got four of them. Uh, so yeah, you can be praying for me. Um, but um, <clears throat> when my first child arrived and took their first breath, it felt like there's this this weight comes down on you like, like oh my goodness. Like, we're really, we're, we're really responsible for another human being in this life. And, and like, for me, it was just the weight of that, the responsibility of that, of, of going, you know what? The, their first glimpse of, of who God's gonna be and how he loves them is gonna be through me. Uh, how I forgive is gonna inform some of the ways that they even think about their, their heavenly father. Like all the, it's like all of a sudden it gets heavier and heavier but it's also incredible. I remember when we were going home for the first time, leaving the hospital, and it's like you go through the four hours of trying to get the car seat in and like, you know, putting it in the right way. And then you have to repent because of the words that came out. And, um, you know, and I, and I would drive to the hospital and it's just like, oh, we're good and banking jokes and everything. When I'm leaving the hospital with my child for the very first time, it's like 10 and two. And I'm like mad at everybody for going five miles and over. We're going, we've got to be, per- we got to be careful. It was like the most careful I had ever driven ever and probably since then but like it was just the weight of this was huge because of the influence and so here's what I want to tell you and 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 tell myself too is that dads you don't have to be perfect we just need you to be present we need to fight to be present to be there and even when we're physically there we need to be emotionally and, and 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 mentally there Your presence means the world. And as your presence is more consistent, your influence will grow. And I know there's a ton of different pressures from a lot of different places, whether that's work or other relationships that you have. But man, this is huge. Because most likely in in a person's life, and we tell our small group leaders this all the time uh, in family ministries, whether it's kids or students and really even adults too, when we experience crisis, when we experience difficult circumstances, every single one of us, we run to the person who's been present the most in our life, who has shown up, who has been there through thick and thin. And most likely this person becomes probably one of the most influential people in our lives. We listen more intently to that person. We emulate or look up to them. We respond quicker. We, uh, we wanna be like them. And for some of you, you're sitting there going, Kyle, you don't know my dad. 
While everybody's happy about Dad's Day, when we get to Father's Day, there's some pain behind that. There's a painful history that has been long and hard. And maybe your interactions have always been primarily negative or, or, or maybe it always seemed that your father per, valued performance over presence. And you just felt this pressure. I get it. I'm sorry. But know this too, that there's probably somebody in your life that has filled that gap that has been there through all the good and the bad and the ugly and has put their arm around you and said, this is who you can become. Come on, I'm with you. So who this is in our life, this person of influence in our life, it truly matters because they affect us. They affect our perspective. They can mold and kind of shape us. I remember as a young kid, when I used to sit around the dinner table, I wanted to be like my older brother. He was five years older than me. I thought, man, this, this, I, want to be, I want to be like him. We'd get at the dinner table and he could just like crick his eyebrow or look at me in a weird way or like do something to like, he'd make a face and then he'd be like, come on. And I would begin to make faces and, and sounds that weren't appropriate for the dinner table. And my mom and dad would be so mad at me. And it's like, wait a second, it was him. He made me, like, he was wanting me to do it. He did it first. And he's like, no, he'd already stopped. He'd already shut down because he was older and he knew there's a little level and I need to back off that. But it'll be really, really funny if I get my younger brother in trouble. He worked me like a puppet. He was influential. The people that have influence in our life can mold and shape us. They guide us on our journey of becoming. And so we need to make sure that whoever that is in our life, whoever we allow that to be, that they're pointing us in the right direction, that they're cheering us on, not just to take the next step, but to take the next right step in the right direction to get to where we wanna be and ultimately growing into whom we wanna become. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at a group of people called, called the Galatians. They were new to their faith and, and Paul was writing to them to help them understand this newfound faith and how to live in the freedom that he was saying is only found in Christ. But they had so many different voices of trying to help them along the way and this is what you should do and this is how you should be that it was hard for them to discern the truth and also determine the path forward. It sounds a lot like today. I mean, when we're trying to discern the truth and find out what's right, I mean, think about this. The last time you got an illness and then you looked at WebMD, oh my goodness, like the doom, would just, the doom scroll would just kind of come down. It's like, you're about to lose every limb. Good luck. No, I just have a headache. <laughs> but there's so many different voices and so many different opinions and so many different uh, truths that are out there that it can support any p opinion that we bring to it. And so sometimes it gets confusing. What is the right way? Where are we supposed to go? The Galatians found themselves in the same spot and Paul begins to address them. And he said, talking to them about that they came to faith through Christ's work on the cross, but they've allowed the thoughts of other people to kind of cloud that. It's called, they're called Judaizers because they wanted these new found Christians to begin to turn to the law of Moses to turn them to begin to live like they live. And they were adding things to the gospel. And it was as if that Christ, what he did on the cross, wasn't enough. They wanted to add things to it. They couldn't just rest in the fact of the finished work of Christ on the cross. And Paul wasn't happy about it. And he lets them know right from the get-go in, uh, in chapter three. He says this, 
Oh, foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? Now, you, you might be going, you know, that's my next email to that coworker that I need to be able to talk to. I mean, if you started an email like that or a correspondence, like they know what in the world's going on. Like he's saying, oh, foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if it had been seen, if you had seen a picture of his death on a cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? In case you didn't hear me in verse one, how foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It is because you believe the message you heard about Christ. Paul is saying that in essence, the gospel is Christ crucified, period. Christ crucified, period. The Galatians had believed this when they heard the message. He even says it was clear to you, clear as a picture, in the original text, this word of clearly, uh, clear as a picture could be translated as clearly portrayed or even vividly, graphically. It was something that when they heard it, it gripped their hearts and they were like, ah, I'm on board. I believe. And it was this message wasn't about what they needed to do. It wasn't calling them to, here's the next steps along the way. And if you just do these, then you'll be made right with God. No, it, they were hearing a message that said, you are justified by Christ's work, not their own. Like what Pete shared last week, we are justified through Christ crucified, period. John Stott says this, the gospel is not good advice to men, but good news about Christ. Not an invitation to us to do anything, but a declaration of what God has done. Not a demand, but an offer. You see, they had a difficult time wrapping their finite minds around this infinite thought. The infinite thought of like, how in the world could I be made right with the creator of the universe by only believing this? Surely there's a bunch of other things that I'm supposed to be able to, that I have to do. And the Judaizers capitalized on that and said, yes, there are. You need to live like us. You need to live like the Jews, Jewish Christians. You need to follow all these laws. And so they begin to be swayed because of their newfound faith. And they moved from the blessing of the spirit that Paul was talking about to the curse and the weight of the law. You see, if they were going to follow the law of Moses to be made right by God, they would have to follow the law in all of its fullness, like all of it. Because if they messed up, then they were, had to bring atonement. They had to bring it to the priest and the priest would offer the sacrifice and then they would, they would be atoned and they would be made right from God. The law was this works-based righteousness that was fulfilled by doing, not believing. And these teachers convinced the Galatians that they needed more to believe. But Paul says, no, it's not that way. It's Christ crucified, Period. Paul uses verses two and three. They're parallel verses and to emphasize that all they need is the gospel message that they believed first. He uses the phrases, he contrasts believing with obeying the law of Moses and starting your new lives in the spirit with trying to become perfect by your own human effort. 
This phrase translated in the original text, trying to become perfect, is epitelio, meaning completeness. Completeness. They were looking, how do I complete my faith? And the Judaizers are like, you know, well, here's how you complete it. You follow the law of Moses. Step by step, do this, and then you're going to be good to go. But they were looking for this completeness and this meaning and striving towards it. And Paul is saying, no, that's not right. And because that's the way the world works, it's easier for them to kind of wrap their minds around it because yes, everything else in our world, I've got to work, I've got to put out effort, I've got to strive, and then I get the reward for it. But Paul says that believing the gospel means abandoning that entire approach. He's saying essentially that we've got to enact a revolution in our, in our life and in our spirit that says, you know what? When we trust our sense of completion and, and perfection on us, when it's on other people, when we look to other people for that, it is not going to satisfy. It is only when we look to our completion and our perfection and our righteousness when we trust what is done on the cross in the form of Jesus Christ, period. He continues on in verse six. In the same way, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures look forward to this time when God would make the Gentiles right in his sight because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all the nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. Now, Paul was a master of of debate. He was a great public speaker. And he knew in this moment, okay, the Judaizers are saying, we need you to go to this giant of our faith, Moses, the law of Moses. You've got to return to that. And if you follow this, then you're going to be made complete. Then you're going to be in right standing with God. And Paul's like, okay, if I'm going to contrast this, if, if, if I'm going to like contradict this false narrative that these teachers are teaching, then I'm going to bring them before Moses. I'm going to go before Moses and I'm going to go to the father of the Jews. If they're saying you need to live like the Jews, okay, Let's look at the father of the Jews. And every time I hear Abraham, and as I was looking at this, it makes me think of that song that I learned as a kid. I don't know if some of you have ever sang that one, you know, like, Father Abraham has many sons, and many sons has Father Abraham, and I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's just sing along. And then it got into the motions. If you really want to do the motions, we'll be down here at the end of the service. We'll have our own little dance party, little rave. It'll be great. But Paul takes the Galatians back to the father of the Jews, Abraham, and he's looking at Genesis 15, five and six. And it says this, then the Lord took Abram. He was known as Abram before he was Abraham. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. Now that statement alone, just to any normal person might make, you know, you want to run for the hills. What? Like that many kids? I can only control like one or two of these kids. Like descendants as many as the stars. What in the world's going to happen? We might have trouble believing that. But Abram, it was even more audacious because he and Sarah had, were barren. They couldn't have kids. They wanted so desperately with everything in them to have a, a, a kid. But they couldn't. And then God takes him outside and says, look up at the stars and count them if you can, because your descendants are going to be numbered like that. If that's me, I'm thinking Abraham probably is like, (laughs) yeah, good deal. You know, 
But that's not what he does, right? And even Sarah, when she heard the news, she responded in that way. But Abram, look at what he does in verse six. And Abram, in that moment, believed the Lord. And the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. It wasn't anything that Abram had done. It was all about the initiation of the creator coming to him and saying, I'm going to do this. I don't need you to do anything. All I need is you for to believe. And Abram believed. And because of that, he was counted as righteous. It wasn't his works. It was God taking the action. It was God moving forward to say, this promise is built on my faithfulness, not on yours. This covenant that I'm going to make with you and your descendants is based on my action and my pursuit and my love and my mercy more than it is about anything that you do. Abram believed and he was counted as righteous. In other translations, it even says that he was credited righteousness. Now, this is unique and counterintuitive, not only for the Galatians, but for us as today as well. Because when you're credited with something, it means that you get the benefits of it before you have to pay the cost of it. Meaning that sometimes in, in your life, even when you're credited with something, that you will never fully pay the cost. You might not ever pay the cost. And God credits Abraham's faith as, as righteousness, meaning that he treats Abraham as if he was already living a righteous life. Tim Keller in Galatians for You, which has been a great companion uh, book during this series for us and, uh, and looking at it, it says this, Tim Keller, when God credits righteousness, he is conferring a legal status on someone. He treats them as actually righteous and free from condemnation, even though they are still actually unrighteous in their heart and behavior. They are justified. They're justified by God's work, by Christ's work on the cross. We're justified. We're made right. But how do we fight the urge and everything in us that tells us, man, this is, this is I, I, I can't really comprehend it. This doesn't work for me. I've got to be able to work. I've got to do something. I, it's, it can't be free, right? It made me think of somebody that moves from like using a, a PC to using a Mac computer. It's like, oh, wait, there's got to be 15 more steps for me to accomplish this. Uh, but it's not. It's just that easy because it's a Mac. Um, <laughs> But how do we fight the urge of our natural works-based kind of culture and construct of having to earn it way of life? The first thing is this, is I think we've got to step away from if I, then you will kind of statements and constructs. The truth of the gospel was that it's contrary to how everything else operates. Our culture operates with the if I, then you will construct. This applies to our relationships. If I communicate regularly, if we spend quality time, if you do the right acts of service, going down the love languages, if you do that for me, then I'm going to reciprocate. And if you don't, then maybe we got to find a different relationship. Or maybe well, I'm going to follow you and I'm going to like everything that you say on, on, on social media. And if you begin to stop liking me, then I might unfriend you. If I'm a good enough person, if I'm uh, at work, if, if I'm a good enough worker, if I do all the things that I'm supposed to do and maybe even exceed expectations, then you will pay me. You will give me a promotion. You will give me a raise. We think about that. Or think about school. If I study, you will give me a good grade. 
That's how that construct works. But what happens when we take that construct of if I, then you will, and we flip that up into our faith. And we have that with God. If I, then God, you will. How many times have we found ourselves in that kind of situation where it's like, God, if I do all the things you're asking me to do, if I live the life you ask me to live, if I go and, and attend enough Sundays, if I am good enough, if I memorize enough scripture, then you will come through for me. But the problem is, is when we live within these constructs, it kind of breeds entitlement in us. And entitlement can't go side by side with sovereignty. Because God, when he looks at our life, he sees every single moment of it in a snapshot. He knows the right steps. He knows the right paths. And so we might be asking, God, I just want to get to here. And God's saying, no, the most loving thing I can do for you is lead you here. But God, I've done everything that you've asked. I've read all this stuff. I've tried to do all the things. And so you're supposed to come through in the way that I want you to come through. How does that work when somebody is struggling with an illness? What happens to our faith in that construct? I've seen it crumble time and time again, where people become disillusioned because God hasn't come through because they have been operating from a, if I, then God, you will. We've got to move away from that and move to God. This is what my heart desires, but your will be done. Think about right before Jesus went to the cross, he's in the garden and he's like, Father, is there any other way that this cup can be taken from me? Is there any other way to accomplish what you want to accomplish? But if not, your will be done. That's what we have to move from. We have to step away from if I, then you will and move to your will be done. We also have to remind ourselves daily that the gospel is enough. The gospel is enough. And as a result of the gospel being enough, you and I are enough. We're enough. What you're doing, how you are, how you were created, all of your idiosyncrasies and your personality, you are enough. So we have to quiet all the other voices in our life that say, no, you've got to strive after all these things. If you're not doing such and such and all these five different steps as a Christian, you probably aren't a really good Christian. We've got to stop comparing ourselves and saying, man, if I could just work harder, if I could just have more willpower, if I could just tighten my discipline. See, here's the thing. Dick Kaufman, executive pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church says this, Christians think that we are saved by the gospel, but then we grow by applying biblical principles to every area of our life. But we are not just saved by the gospel, we grow by applying the gospel to every area of our life. I wish I would have known that back in the day. Because early on, my Christian way of life was striving to compare myself and to be better than the person next to me or somebody that I revered. And it was about all these steps and about all this work. But man, what about this? What if our works-based pursuit of righteousness is the reason that we find ourselves often stuck in the same spiritual rut over and over and wondering where God is? But it's a construct that we created ourselves because it was about us. This feeds this dependence on self rather than the spirit. Instead, we've got to go back again and again to the gospel of Christ crucified. Christ crucified, period. That's it. That's what makes us right with God. 
All the other stuff, all of the spiritual disciplines, all of the Bible studies, gathering at church, it comes as a result of coming face to face with the sacrifice that, made, that Christ made on the cross. When we look at that and go, God, you were willing to do that for me? Then man, I wanna know you more. I wanna be around other people that help me become to know you more and to help me be the best person I can be, to, to, to help me to kind of put down some of the works base and just to be in, the, in, in this relationship with, cross, with the cross. When we do that, our hearts are gripped in a way by what he did and who we are in him. So we got to remind ourselves consistently about what he did on the cross, about the gospel message. And then finally, rest in the shadow of the cross. We have to rest in and believe in the work of Christ on the cross. Through the cross, we are credited righteousness. He was crushed. Through the cross, we were reunited with the creator of the universe. He was forsaken. Through the work on the cross, we were raised to new life while he was buried. You see, what he did on the cross for us was found in 1 Peter 2, 24. He personally carried our sins in his own body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, we are healed. Not anything that we've done, not anything we can do, not anything we could dream up, It is only by his wounds on the cross that we are made right with God. You see, the gospel is the start of our faith. It's also the catalyst that grows our faith. And it is the singular reason why we are allowed to experience eternity at the finish line. It comes down to his work, his pursuit, his initiative, and us just believing in him, believing in his faithfulness. What he does, he does because of his faithfulness, his promise, his covenant, his unending love. In preparing for this series, I was introduced to the preaching of Alistair Begg, who is a pastor at Cleveland's Parkside Church. And he gave a message at a, at a national preaching conference in 2019. And when I came across this, I was just like, man, this is exactly kind of where we're at uh, today. And I wanted to share just an excerpt uh, with it from you, to you. Without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So to go to the the question, he named uh, the Fort Lauderdale question, and it's, it's this question. If you were to die tonight, if I was to die tonight, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? What is your reason for entry? And if the answer that I come up with or that you come up with is in the first person, then we've immediately gone wrong. If we answer, because I, well, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I'm continuing, the only proper answer is in the third person. It is because he, because of what he did on the cross. That is why I can gain entry. I mean, think about the thief on the cross when Christ was crucified. I think it would be an amazing kind of chance to be able to ask him like, up in heaven, you get there and it's like, I can't wait to say, you know, like, how did that shake out for you? 
Like you and your buddy were just cussing Jesus right before and like you'd never been to a Bible study. You, uh, you know, you've never been baptized. You don't know anything about church membership and yet you made it. You're here. How did you make it? I mean, think about the angels. They must've had the same question. Like he gets to the doorway of heaven and then they're like, you know, uh, what are you doing here? And he's like, I don't know. Well, what do you mean you don't know? I, I don't know, because I, I, I just don't. Well, you, you know, I, hold on, let me get my supervisory angel real quick. And so like, he goes back and he grabs somebody else that's, that's greater than supervisory angel, comes back to the thief and says, hey, I've got, a, just a, I've got a few questions for you. Uh, first of all, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? And the guy's like, I've never heard it in my life. Well, okay, well, uh, let's see. What about the doctrine of scripture? How, how, how are you on that? And eventually in frustration, <clears throat> the, the supervisory angel looks at him and goes like, on what basis are you here? And he looks, I don't know. All I know is that the middle man on the cross said I could come. That's the reason. And that's the reason for you and I. It is not anything that we are going to be able to do. The only answer is that we have got to consistently on a daily basis say, the gospel is enough for me. Because if we don't, we find ourselves trusting in ourselves, our own experience. We trust in our experience and our ability and our talent. Because that's who we are. We're fallen individuals and we run to our own devices. But if we take our eyes off the cross, then we're going to live in a way that the salvation depends on us and not on the work of the cross. And as soon as we go there, it's going to lead to two areas, two different places, either abject despair because we can't do it. We can't follow through. We can't do enough. We can never arrive. We can never experience that completeness or it's gonna be a horrible kind of arrogance where you think you can do nothing wrong. But both of those, even in spite of that, Jesus says, this is what the cross comes to deal with. The abject despair of humanity and the intolerable arrogance that says, I can do it on my own. The hymn before the throne of God above says this, because the sinless savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The gospel message is Christ crucified, period. It's the start of our faith. It is the catalyst that we grow in. And it is the singular reason why we get to experience eternity at the finish line. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by your faithfulness. God, that you saw in your creation something that you could not live without, that you wanted us, you wanted relationship with us so much that you sent your son to die on a cross. And so God, in these moments, as we continue to work out our faith, God, help us, give us the courage to put our works down, to remind us of the sacrifice that you have made and to rest 
in you, to abide in you, to find peace in you, to stop striving, to stop trying to just work it out on our own will. But that God, in these moments that we could just come to you and lay down our striving and say, Father, thank you. I believe in what you have done on the cross for me. And then, Father, your spirit works. It's, God works its power in us to finally allow us to feel free, to finally allow us to discover what we were created for all along, and that is for a relationship with you. So God, in these next moments, as we remember what you did on the cross, I pray that you continue to speak to our hearts. That's in your son's name we pray, amen.